You are listening to Sing Amen, ministering through music. I am Jennifer Kerr-Budziak, and welcome to our podcast. Today we have a conversation with choral conductor Michael Kemp, who has written several books, including The Choral Challenge, um, Innovative Warm-Ups for the Volunteer Choir, Rejuvenating Senior Voices is another book of his. It's a wonderful, wonderful book, helping choir directors deal with the vocal issues that often begin to affect our choral singers as they age. And then his most recent book, Igniting Choral Rehearsals with Efficiency, Artistry, and Motivation. I had the privilege of helping edit that last book, so I got to be with it through its whole production stage. And it's just this, it's this excellent and practical handbook for choral conductors who are looking for ways to approach choir rehearsals uh, in a manner that will not just be more efficient and accomplish more, but also be more fun and stimulating for everybody involved. The book suggests specific areas of focus that we can be looking at simultaneously in layers as we work on a piece, rather than just saying, okay, let's learn the notes, and then we can work on musicality, and then we can work on dynamics or vowel formation or whatever other elements of the piece need work. We can do it in layers all at once. And after laying out what some of those layers are, he offers 17 octavos, fully analyzed and with the scores marked in the way he would mark them to go into a rehearsal. And this sort of takes the concept out of the theoretical into something concrete and incredibly practical. I'm a fan of practical. Uh, I should also mention that the selections of music you will hear throughout the podcast are taken from those 17 anthems. We just heard a little bit of Oh Lord, Increase My Faith by Orlando Gibbons, And then partway through, we'll hear a selection from the Garrett arrangement of Were You There? And the podcast will conclude with Zach Stahowski's lovely Panis Angelicus. And of course, as always, you can find more information as well as links for ordering on our website at singamen.giamusic.com. And then you can click on the podcast link in the top menu. I recorded this interview with Michael. It was actually over a year ago at the NPM convention he spoke at in Baltimore. Again, please pardon the street noises and the sirens. I couldn't edit them out. Uh, But I'm just so delighted to finally be able to get this one out into the world. So I'm here at NPM uh, speaking with Michael Kemp, who will be giving a workshop tomorrow on igniting choral rehearsals. This is based on his book of the same name. I got to edit this book with Michael, and he's so full of so much wisdom and practical knowledge. He takes solid pedagogy and translates it into a way and gives us just great tricks for how to work with choirs. So I'm just hoping we can sit here and I can pick his brain a little and he can give us some of his secrets. Well, first of all, we ought to tell you what the entire title of the book is. Uh, Igniting Rehearsals with Efficiency, Artistry, and Motivation. All of those are key elements. And all of those take both scholarship and learning, knowledge, and they have to both take things that you have learned by study, but also put them in language that you can convey these ideas to real people. So many choral clinicians who give these kinds of lectures 
have never had a church job. They don't know anything about volunteer choirs. They get rid of all the problems because of auditions or hiring pros. That's not where we are. We really need to recruit people that have a passion for what we think is important and then teach them what they need to know. That's quite exciting. I've had many concerns in the past. Uh, one, you know, maybe the fact that church choirs are getting older and smaller. <laughs> My biggest concern today for church musicians, and this is not meant to be criticism, but it's the fact that there is an unintended complacency that what I find when I talk to everyday choir directors in churches is, oh, we've got to figure out some way to survive this anthem without falling apart. We just have to get through it. There There's got to be a higher deeper, bar than that. There is a higher and a deeper way to go. You know, the complacency is just that they haven't thought about, oh, wait a minute, what's possible? If you go a little deeper, then uh, all of a sudden people get interested, get inspired, and you do. And directors, when they plan and carefully look at things with a different light, then they can't wait to go to rehearsals and see what happens. And people can't wait to come to rehearsals because of the different things happening. For instance, how do most choir directors prepare for rehearsals? Sit at the piano and they play through the anthem twice. What does that do to help singers? Nothing. Nothing. So what you really want to do you know, is to take one part, even at the piano or singing, one part at a time and look at it horizontally. Figure out where the phrase stops, where the ebb and flow, that's a wrong term. It should be flow and ebb. You know, and I found this out from orchestral conducting. It was when I did the Schubert Fifth Symphony, it just seemed to be coming out plain to me until I took a careful look at it. It just hit me, wait a minute. Where are the phrases? And, and then if you do the, the phrasing too. But if you go to something like, you know, historical anthems, which the Catholic Church, thank goodness, they still love to sing some of those, mm -hmm. okay? But many people say there are only two kinds of choral music, contemporary and museum historical. Wrong. You have Very to wrong. look. You have to look at the composer, and usually in the anthem there are the dates. And then you say, okay, at what point was this composer 30 years old? And then if it went to 55, during those 25 years, what era was that in? Every museum piece, quote unquote, was contemporary music at the time it was written. And there was something happening in the world, and there was something happening in, yes, but, you know, politically that, and historically. Because I think you talk about that too. What was going on well, in the composer's that I, life too? That I learned long ago, especially with good youth choirs, but they knew nothing about history. You know, was to do a capsule of history at the beginning of each anthem being rehearsed, like Thomas Morley. So, okay, that's back at this time and this place. Now, when he is on his way to rehearsal, what is he seeing? What did he see when he walks down the street? What's happening? What's invented? You know, what, what's going on in the world? Are they in the middle, you know, of the Thirty Years' War? If you take that capsule of history, you know, and you get that in people's minds and then say, pretend you are not here now. You are at rehearsal with Thomas Morley in that room. It changes the sound and it mm -hmm. makes it more interesting. There is a book uh, about 30 years old now, but Timetables of History. 
mm -hmm. Life and Time magazine, some timetables of history. It takes every decade for the last 600 years and tells you what was new in that decade, what's happening in that decade, both you know with uh, science, people, with uh, wars, and I find history is fascinating if people can say, okay, now I'm a part of history. Mm -hmm. But see, these little things intrigue people. You know, they, they want to you know, take a look at it. In my, in my first book, The Coral Challenge, I talk about rehearsal agendas. Yes. Uh, and I've got a graph. And the graph starts in, you know, in September, and it says, okay, uh, if you go to September to May, what's the energy level? You come in, you're diffused, you know, and then you try to build things up, and you build things up, and it goes up to Advent, and gets to Christmas, then it goes way down, then it's real bad, real low <laughs> in January, February, it starts to go up, then it goes out and kind of goes away. Rehearsals are just like that. If you come into a rehearsal, people are scattered. They're thinking about their kids at home. They're thinking about, oh, and I had this problem at work today. You've got to take them out of their mentality into a new mentality in the first 10 minutes. That's why warm-ups are important. I always have two sets of warm-ups ready. One, if people come in and they look apathetic and worn out, I build up their energy. If they too pumped up, I build up their serenity. i got two ways to go, but I look at them. I look at them, I talk to them and say, okay, we're going to have to go this way. And I think yeah. you also said that for you, the rehearsal starts before the rehearsal. You oh, know, that, sure. Yeah, that it's, you know, it's not just about when you start making music, but people walk into your you building. You have to be a great host. That's why I say to people, and it, it, it always gets a little laugh from people, but I say never, as a director, walk into a rehearsal room without going into the bathroom first. <laughs> I said, why? Because you need to go look in the mirror you need to stand up straight, you need to bend your low back, arc it, push your upper torso up, and then look at your eyeballs. And you need to take your eyeballs intensity from one, two, three, four, and you get up to ten. You know, and then you take yourself in there and you walk in that rehearsal looking like that. And when you go in there, don't ignore people. You go up and talk to people during breaks, even in orchestra rehearsals especially. Mm. You know, most orchestra rehearsals, the orchestra conductors just they hide away. No, no, no. <laughs> I walk around, I compliment people, I talk to people, I call everybody by name. Just go in there and make it something special. It's so important because sometimes we think that directing music is mainly about the music, and it isn't. It's, it's always making music with people. What most of us learn in music school is about how to do the music, and nobody ever teaches us really how to deal with people as other human well, beings. They, they it's don't like even, They don't even teach you how to clarify. You know, one thing we're going to talk about in the future is combining orchestral conducting techniques and choral conducting techniques. One is about expression, one is about clarity. You need both. But what I was about to say is church music, working with volunteer singers, is about problem solving creative, positive problem solving. You always have my mom's face. I never once in my life, uh, Helen Kemp was fairly well known. I well, actually, never... by the, the pastoral music audience, they might not know your mom. Can you tell us a little about your mom? Well, she, um, now I've done 500 workshops, but she used to put me down because she did 750. <laughs> you know, she had a great sense of humor. 
when she moved to a retirement home and it was only 30 minutes from me, I took her on a mom date every three weeks. Oh. You know, went out for enchiladas and, you know, we just had a... Uh, and I would, uh, several times a year, go and decorate her balcony. I would landscape it. I'm a landscaper gardener. I grew up that way. And she didn't know about it. So she'd be down eating. I'd sneak into her apartment and I would create a museum piece of a garden <laughs> in, in her balcony. Special lighting, everything. Wow. You know, and then I sneak out. I wouldn't even say anything. And she'd come in. But she was the most positive person I've ever seen. I never once saw her when her eyes weren't beaming and bright. I mean, she was just inspiring to everybody. You know, even to me, when I come in and I'd be upset about something, which is rare for me, she wouldn't let me hang there. She'd find a solution. The fact of the matter is, when I find myself very occasionally a little in the dumps, you know, I don't know why, then you know, I do the Stanislavski method of acting. Mm-hmm. You know what that is? Yes. That's where actors, if you were going to play the part of a plumber, then you would go take a job for a month as a plumber and learn how to do it. And then you don't just act the part, you are the part. I've conducted all, all the Beethoven symphonies, and they, you know, but sometimes when you walk out, you think, oh, yeah, what am I doing? I'm <laughs> you know, you know, and so... I have to choose. Who would I like to be for the first five minutes? Okay, Toscanini. I'll start with Toscanini, and then I go into myself. You know, and so the same thing for my mom. If she is so up, I'm going to be my mom for five minutes, you know, until I get hold of it. But I'm never not going to be there. Now, there, you have to be sneaky sometimes in choir rehearsals. You know, have you ever had the moment, Jennifer, when, when nothing is going right? Oh, when, yeah. Everything you tried, nobody gets it. Nothing works, yeah. Well, I may go to hell for this, but I found a solution. And, and that is, <laughs> nobody was able to do the articulation I want. Nobody was doing the clarity. And so I turned around, which I rarely do, and I lost my temper at the sopranos, altos, and basses. And I yelled at them. I said, well, I don't understand why you can't do what the tenors just did. If the tenors <laughs> heard me and they did it, why didn't you do tenors do that again? And the tenors, go, <laughs> and the tenors did it. And then I added the altos to I added them. I added them. Everybody was doing it. I had to make it up. <laughs> But it worked? Oh, boy, did it work. Oh, all's fair in love and choir rehearsal. But but the thing is, it's a combination of humor, of warmth. Uh, You don't let anything get you down. You pick it up. You know, I mean, that's what we're there for. We're there to honor music, to honor people, to honor spirituality, to convey a warmth. And that's part of why I want to get back into it. The fact of the matter is that all of us have potential. Uh, It's just that we haven't had lessons. If you convey things like breath support, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, the the things that are are in the the rejuvenating book are posture, breath support, tone placement, open throat singing, and clarity of enunciation, too. You know, for instance, posture. If you see your choir kind of... Mm -hmm. And you say, okay, give me better posture. Well, they all do different things. Right. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what that means. No. Yeah. Posture is about flexibility and perpetual lengthening. And it's uplifting. Literally uplifting. Exactly. But when I see various church choirs, I've seen them rehearse sometimes, and they're doing a warm-up. Well, the, the director's at the piano and banging away and not even looking up. 
not even listening. And not on purpose, it's just this unintended complacency. And here are the people sitting there with their legs crossed, with their low back, and they went, ah. But that's not preparing them for rehearsal. No. Then for the breath support, my sister Julie, my older sister, and her husband Guy, between them they've sung 7,000 opera performances all over Europe. And they are brilliant. They were on the voice teachers at Westminster too later. Mm -hmm. I had a long talk with them in the midst of writing that book, but we talked about breast support. And Guy said to me, all you have to do is tell your singers to burn down the village. I said, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? He said, well, you got to go back to medieval times, legendary. Uh, and there was this monster, nasty, fire-breathing dragon, uh, and the village didn't like it. The village would throw stones and, you know, and it made the dragon mad. And the dragon comes up on the hill above the village, takes a deep breath, and he blows fire and burns down the village. They, you know, and then I have people do that. That's breast support. You triple, you quadruple the sound of your choir with one thing. And there are many ways to talk about breast support, but back to the igniting, there probably is more covered in that book than I've ever seen covered in a choral that, book. There is so much in there. Can you go to the, the, the way you approach a choral piece, you know, that the idea of the different layers and the way that you approach it over a series of rehearsals? Well, I mean, the good thing is GI has wonderful anthems and they're very useful to church musicians. And so I went through about 300 anthems and narrowed it down, narrowed it down, narrowed it down, and finally got it down to 17 anthems mm -hmm. that were the most beautiful, the most variety, uh, most accessible. You don't have to have professional singers in your choir to get this done. You mm -hmm. can do this. Uh, and then uh, and what I did was study each of those anthems the, the way that I would. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, one of the pieces that I do is Were You There? Mm -hmm. by Garrett, arranged. Were you there when they... most important word right there is there. But how do you bring attention to it? Through an agogic delay. If you say for me, one, two, three, four, five, no interest. But what if I said, 
One, two, three, four, five. All your attention is on five because you, it, it didn't come. Oh, there it is. So if you say, were you there? That's an agogic delay. And then the theory of the anacruses. Uh, and that, uh, that simply means that pickup notes or the little notes that are before a first big note of the next measure. Now that's why you need to teach choirs to sing with an up bow or down bow. Yes. Yeah, you now I'm a violist, too. a violinist. Make I my, played cello for a really long time. And I make my own violas <laughs> violins. Really? Yeah. You are really interesting. I've made three <laughs> violins Gardner, and two violas. You build instruments. My first viola took me 11 months and 400 hours in my spare time. Wow. But if you take an up bow, the weight, the power, is in your right arm. Mm -hmm. But your right arm is way out, and the tip of the bow is on the string, but you can't push down very hard. But as you go up bow, it gains power because you've got the, you know, the weight of yeah. the arm. If it's down bow, it starts, boom, and then it eases. And then it eases. So one thing you can do, you could take one anthem and you could bow, uh, say, two or three pages as a string player and teach people momentum. If you have a, something, hallelujah. Now, the thing is, it gets sloppy, hallelujah. But if you want it to be clear, you add little teeny H's, Not enough that people can hear, mm -hmm. but that you did a little bit of trampolining. Hallelujah. Now, if you know that, you don't say it ahead of time. You only say it if it's unclear. And you've got this whole pocket full of ideas. And that makes rehearsals so intriguing. Oh, yeah. You know, so many things you can do. Well, the other thing, too, that, I mean, it's part of the thing that's too bad that this is only an audio podcast, because I'm sitting across the table from you, <laughs> and, um, you know, even as you were doing that exercise, your, your hand was moving forward, and so at the same time as you were describing or telling the choir to do whatever it is, that the, as conductors, our gesture, our direction, when you talk about trampolining, as people what hearing you're it, talking your about, hands are bouncing. But what and, you're talking about is kinesthetics. Yes, and, and, talk about uh, that too. You know, that if you take your hand as a singer and go like this. He just sort of made an arc like, with his uh, finger. Yeah, like, um, no, 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 no. What I'm doing is taking my finger up and pushing it forward all the way to that target note and then let it relax. Now here's a question for you that's in the book. How many syllables are in the word no? For singers, it's two. No. There's a what? It's a teeny little. Not that anybody wants to hear it, but if you put a teeny what on there, then the entire last pitch of a phrase is beautiful. So you use that I, extra syllable to. Oh, yeah. I know, I know. Or, oh, I know, I know. So, I, it is so interesting talking about this with you now, hearing you demonstrate as mm -hmm. opposed to seeing it, because I didn't, until until just now, I didn't really get that, put the what on the end. I was like, really? I don't know. But seeing seeing you do it, it's like, oh my God, that makes perfect sense, but the, because but about, it gives the know, end ten, to ten the word. It doesn't like just sort of, meh. Like, my, has a yeah. My, 
Yeah, and so many things are like that. Do you ever get singers who overdo that? And you have to tell, it's like, oh, sure. put the what there, but You less. have to overdo yeah. it first. And you applaud them and then say, do it again, but don't let me hear it. Ah, uh, let me really? tell you, yeah, that's it. how do you teach articulation? People don't know what legato means. Legato means connected. Connected. Okay? And no interstices. That's one of those fancy words. Yes. Uh, that means separations. So what I do is have a choir. It came upon a midnight clear. Just have them sing that much yes. of the melody. And then explain to them, now you've had a hard, hard day. Uh, and you've just, you know, decided to hit the bottle. You know, you've had a, too much <laughs> wine. And I, so I want you all to bring in your professional actress, actors and actresses, and that you uh, are highly drunk. Now, sing it like this. It came upon a midnight clear. <laughs> you know, and they love it. Then say, now do it again. But I don't want to hear that you're sliding between, but I want you to slide between every note. It came upon a midnight clear. So you're being a subtle drunkard. <laughs> and it's a perfect legato. I, yeah, I bet it is. You know, yeah. uh, and then the most, the, the most interesting thing that you could possibly teach a choir for rehearsal is portato. Mm -hmm. Portato has the initiation like a staccato, but a smooth follow through. Uh, and therefore it's clean and clear, but musical. It's still musical. So then you have them do the same thing uh, as if they're a tap dancer. And uh, you know, young kid, it came up, 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 it came clear. So you have half the choir do that. And half the choir do a little bit of the drunken, subtle. Mm -hmm. Here it came, it came. And then have that switch, and the other mm -hmm. side do the other side do that. And it said, while you're doing that, are you listening to the other part? What does it sound like together? Now, everybody combine what it sounded like together. Here it came upon a midnight clear portato. And rehearsals are beautiful, man clear and accurate. So you don't get there by telling people, sing staccato. No, you've got no. to find a you path help them find the that way they to can do understand. It. You also talk about um, consonants and the way they work within phrases. I believe the idea that, that when, you, when we don't hear a consonant, it's not because we're not seeing the consonant, but it's because we're not taking the vowel all the way to the consonant. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Well, first back, of all, that, but that's also part of line. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, first of all, uh, if you, most people don't know what consonants are. I hate it when I hear directors say, give me better consonants. That yeah, doesn't help that anybody. Right. A consonant is in the middle of a sustained line of voice sound, a stoppage, mm -hmm. a partial or a total stoppage of some part of your physique that stops this. And then the consonant, and then they go through. But what everybody does uh, is come up and they feel the consonant coming, so they quit pushing. And then mm -hmm. they go, and then they start again. Well, the consonant sound is only because you kept pushing. God, the soul of the world. Yeah. You know, God, the soul of the world. God, yeah. the soul of the world. 
shoulder. And did you notice also that you pay attention to big notes, but you, to big syllables and words, but you don't make a big thing of things like the, the world. If you do it the other way, God so loved the world, God so loved the world, then everybody understands what it's about. You don't need to go duck, you know, so you mark that word out and you just mumble it. It's all there for us to do mm -hmm. and it makes it more interesting. One of the things I remember loving was, you know, again, this was in that category of the little tricks that you pull out sometimes, maybe a little less devious than the tenors got it right one. <laughs> um, but when you have one part, you know, if you have your four part chorus and one part is just not getting their part, say have everybody sing the tenor part with the tenors mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then have one part leave it, you know, like say take the basses to their part, soprano, alto, tenor, all sing the tenor part, then maybe take the sopranos up, altos and tenors sing the tenor part. And There's so by the time everybody sings it. There's always a way to solve it. Yeah. There's always a way to solve it. The other thing about efficiency, choir directors, their, their main focus is uh, let's get through this anthem without collapsing. So that We means, have to learn the notes. That means efficiency. But how do you learn efficiency? You've got to go through each part. For instance, if there's an interlude, where is that soprano pitch coming from? You can generally take it from either the pitch, last pitch you sang and remember it, or you can circle one note of the accompaniment melody and put an arrow up to it so that if they miss it, if they, if they don't miss it, don't say anything. Right. If they miss it, you can tell them what to do about it. But if you, the director, have not gone through and actually sung the soprano part before right. you hear the soprano sing it, you won't know that. And now, that's, if you're just playing yeah. the piano, you also don't know that the altos have an E flat and the tenors have a D. And what happens is one of the two parts will fade out because they think they're wrong. Mm -hmm. and the piano covers it, and you don't know about it until you're, <laughs> until <laughs> until you're on a Sunday morning, <laughs> and they say, this is about character. I'm going to try it. And they sing the wrong note. <laughs> you know, but if you have that, you put a little box around that E flat and that D, a little rectangle, and then you take that little interlude or thing go in and go into it with just the altos or go into it with just tenors, now go into it with the altos and the tenors, then go into SATB, then go with it with everybody and keep going. You solved the problem. And you've solved the problem before they've spent several times going through it making the mistake and reinforcing the mistake. Yeah, catch exactly. It right away. If you let people keep making mistakes, they can't get it's it out so of the system. It's so hard to stop, yeah. Yeah. So I like that. I mean, it's one of the traps that we fall into, especially if we have choirs that don't read, is, all right, let's do the soprano part. Okay, let's do the alto part. And just one part at a time. And so three-fourths of the choir is sitting there. You don't want to have, just because one part's having a problem, you don't want the others to be bored. So you bring them all in. You keep everybody active. You have to be aware of more than your own voice and, the, and your own part. The other thing that in the 17 annotated anthems, I also suggest the perfect warm-up for each one that gets you ready musically and vocally to make that piece sound beautiful, that specific piece. You know, that's you know, a fun thing to do. Yeah. Let's think we should never, ever be only doing one thing at a time in choir rehearsal. I mean, when, when you're, war you know, you choose the warm-up based on the repertoire that's coming because so when you're warming up, you're also getting ready for that next piece. And when you're working the notes in this thing, you're, that's, you know, so it's fundamental to what you're talking about. It's, you have these different layers of things going on. 
But the, all the time. We started talking a, a little bit about that when I mentioned the the church year that went up and down and yeah, spirals yes, on the graph. the pacing of well, the rehearsal. But were rehearsals, um, you know, the, the part of the rehearsal that uh, has the most chance for intelligent singing and thought and your best work is about one-fourth of the way in. Because mm -hmm. you get people going, you pump them up, and they're there, you know, and then they start easing down, and it's time for a little break, and then they're down here. And so you have to choose music. The yes. first piece you choose, um, I, I, the second piece ought to always be the one for Sunday, not the first piece. The first piece should be exuberant, should be thrilling, fun to sing, whoa, you know. You know, or maybe the woman, and then the hardest thinking should be that one, and then when you're down here at the bottom, just after the break, that should be the sweetest piece. Uh, and what I would suggest, uh, you know, that you go through every possible piece that's coming up, and the one that's the most beautiful to sing, and the least taxing, and the least tedious. Do right that there. right after the break. And then go up again. And they go, you know, and at the very end, now most people uh, that I have seen in rehearsal, most directors, they procrastinate and they put at the very end the nastiest, hardest piece. <laughs> and, and everyone's exhausted. And, and, but nobody yeah. wants to come back. Right. But if the last thing you do, I always put on the piano a secret box with bows. <laughs> and I have in that box, uh, you know, one of the most favorite pieces of the last five years. And oh, I nice. hand it out and everybody, without rehearsal, they just get to sing it through one time and go home. You want them to be sad about leaving and they yearn to come back. <laughs> My suggestion to conductors is not to video record your conducting yet. That's not the most important thing. Mm -hmm. The most important thing is time efficiency. Uh, and conductors have no idea how much they ramble on and they waste time. And this is not a criticism, it's just, a, a, you know, trying to, you know, make, make people aware. If you record your entire rehearsal, don't make a big thing of it, and then maybe the next day or sometime on the weekend, have a glass of wine, put your feet up, and, and actually take a stopwatch and time <laughs> how much time you talked and how much time they sang. And what you realize is that within an hour, they probably sang less than 20 minutes and you talked more than 40 minutes. You know, but you don't need to. You know, if what you do is reactive, if you, if you think of something, don't, don't fix six, seven things at once fix one thing. But don't go back and sing the whole anthem again. I mean, I knew a guy in, um, at a Presbyterian church in Dallas, you know, and I saw his rehearsal. I won't say who he is because he was famous, <laughs> but he was very proud. He had a double quartet of paid soloists, a big choir, but he was very proud of running straight through 30 anthems in every rehearsal, but he didn't adjust anything. He just let the, the soloist handle it. That's boring. That's boring. You and know, nobody's learning but anything. If, but if you take a piece, and if you've analyzed ahead of time, you circle the danger places, and then in measure 26, 
you have a little problem. Go back to measure 24 and come to that note until it's right. Don't go through the whole thing again. Time efficiency is very important. I would say that you should go into rehearsals with great expectation. Uh, and what I used to do, you know, I, I built maybe eight youth choirs from scratch, schools and churches, from nothing. Uh, but what I would do, because they were always apathetic, and I even did this with adults, uh, I, would say, I would say to them, take out a, a board, you know, and, and write down what they said. I said, now, if you were a basketball player, would you rather be on the worst team in the league or the state championship team? State champion. Oh, really? What did you have to do to get there? What did it take? What did it take from your discipline and from your efficiency and for your work? And what did you put into it? Where are you going? And where are we? Do we want to be there? Do we want to be here? Uh, and by the end of that, they were so pumped up. They were so pumped up, they wanted to be a champion choir. I just gave them the choice, and they decided.
for more information, including details about the music you heard on today's podcast, please visit our website at singamen.giamusic.com. Sing Amen is produced and supported by GIA Publications.